This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Mike said, Darren, I ordered two queen-size MyPillows and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com, promo code WEIRD. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. This is the Zodiac speaking. With those words written in a letter to the San Francisco Examiner, a killer was christened and a mystery born that continues to this day. The letter received by the newspaper on August 4, 1969 was claiming credit for two sets of recent murders in the Bay Area around San Francisco. It was the second letter from someone claiming to be the killer, but this time he gave himself his soon-to-be legendary name, the Zodiac. More murders would follow, along with more letters to local newspapers and police. The Zodiac's terrible crimes were being publicly played out in the nation's newspapers, with each twist and turn holding the American public under a grim spell. And then he stopped. Less than a year after his first murder, the Zodiac Killer simply stopped killing. But that is, of course, by no means the end of the story. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. October is our anniversary month here on Weird Darkness celebrating three years this month, and I'm using it to raise funds for depression and suicide prevention. You know, We all know somebody who suffers depression or has thought about or even tried to commit suicide, but I want to bring hope to them and I need your help to do so. A donation of any amount can help us reach our goal of raising $2,000 towards treatment and research for those who are in crisis. You can take a look at the many people who've already given, read their thoughts and opinions, and you can also read the latest update from me and, of course, make a donation at WeirdDarkness.com. Click on Battle the Darkness or click the link in the show notes. And keep listening to the end of the podcast because I'm going to be sharing a very powerful email that I received today from a mother thanking us for raising money for depression and suicide prevention. It is a very powerful email. In fact, I might make it an update on the uh, fundraiser. It's very, very powerful and really touched me. And uh, also, we're getting ready for our Weird Darkness live scream, our very first one taking place October 31st, live on YouTube. I'll be narrating stories as usual, but of course it'll be in real time, on camera, me outside with trick-or-treaters passing by. That's why we're calling it the live scream. So be sure to subscribe to my channel at youtube.com slash MarlarHouse. The Weird Darkness live stream begins October 31st, 5 p.m. Central Time. That's 6 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Mountain, 3 p.m. Pacific. And apologies if I sound a little bit off today. Uh, I got a pounding headache, and ironically that happens to be one of the symptoms of depression for, uh, for, some, for some people. Uh, sometimes I happen to be one of them. But I don't want to skip today's uh, podcast because I really do want to share the letter at the end of the podcast and I don't want to wait another day to do so. So I figured I'd go ahead and do my best for this podcast. Hopefully you won't notice too much of a difference and you'll wonder why I even bothered giving you this little disclaimer. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. America, 
the home of baseball, apple pie, jazz, and the birth of spiritualism. From the spirits of female historical figures to the girlish ghouls of urban legend, female ghosts are some of the scariest spirits out there. And was the legendary serial killer, the Zodiac, a hoax? We'll begin with that story. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Less than a year after his first murder, the Zodiac Killer simply stopped killing. The letters continued, filled with boasts and taunts, and other murders would occasionally be linked to the Zodiac, but, officially at least, he seemed to have had his fill of killing. At the time of the original police investigation, some detectives were skeptical the crimes were related, but mainly on account of the letters. The general consensus was that a serial killer was at work around San Francisco. But despite the conviction they were after one man, the police departments of multiple jurisdictions were unable to develop a credible suspect. To date, the identity of the Zodiac Killer remains a mystery, one that continues to provoke fierce speculation and debate in books, documentaries, and online forums. A mind-boggling number of suspects have been suggested, and it has almost become a national pastime in America to claim the Zodiac was a deceased family member. Fathers, brothers, and uncles all suggested by relatives as the killer, often with accompanying books selling their theory. Author Thomas Horan has built on the suspicions of some of the original investigators that the crimes were not connected to suggest the Zodiac Killer never actually existed. If, as Horan surmises, the letters attributed to the killer were not genuine, then suddenly there is very little reason to believe the murders were even related. Could the Zodiac Killer himself vividly conjured up in a series of letters to San Francisco Bay Area newspapers really be an invention of an enterprising journalist keen to keep a sensational case on the front pages? Or the warped game of a hoaxer? If so, the truth behind this most mysterious of unsolved crimes would be a mundane one. If properly examined, does the reality of the Zodiac Killer really dissolve into fiction? To find out, we must first summarize the purported facts of the case. According to the official story, the Zodiac's murders began in late 1968 with the Christmastime murders of teenagers Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday on December 20th at Lake Herman Road near Benicia, a small city in Solano County, California. At approximately 11 p.m., an unknown assailant with a 22 semi-automatic pistol shot Faraday once in the head and Jensen five times in the back. Both died almost instantly, and there were no signs of sexual molestation or robbery. Six months later, at around midnight the evening of July 4th, a gunman shot 22-year-old Darlene Farron and 19-year-old Mike Majo in a parking lot at Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, four miles away from the Lake Herman Road attack. Darlene Farron was shot five times and was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. Majo survived, despite being shot four times in the face, neck, and chest. Like the previous murders, there were no witnesses and no signs of robbery. Around 40 minutes later, a man called the Vallejo Police Department to claim responsibility for the shooting, telling the police switchboard operator Nancy Slover that he shot the kids with a 9mm Luger. The caller also stated he killed those kids last year a seeming reference to the Lake Herman Road murders. On July 31st, someone claiming to be the killer sent three near-identical letters to the San Francisco Chronicle, San Francisco Examiner, and Vallejo Times 
declaring responsibility for both sets of murders. Alongside the letters was a cryptogram, which, when eventually broken, revealed a rambling message that stated how its writer liked killing people because it is so much fun, and to kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. A similar letter by the same writer was received by the San Francisco Examiner on August 4th that offered more details the writer claimed proved he was the killer. In this letter, the writer christens himself the Zodiac. On September 27, 1969, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were tied up and stabbed multiple times by a man on the shore of Lake Berryessa near Napa, California. Shepard died two days later in the hospital, but Hartnell survived and was able to give a description of his attacker. According to Hartnell, the man wore a strange costume, a black hood and bib, and claimed to be an escaped convict. Tying the pair up, he stabbed both of them repeatedly, then hiked a quarter of a mile to where the pair had parked their car and left a message on their door. The message contained the dates of both this and the previous two attacks, and the murder weapon used in each. It was signed, with the same Circle Crosshair logo present on the letters. About 90 minutes later, someone phoned the Napa County Sheriff's Office to claim responsibility for the attack. On October 11, 1969, at around 10 p.m., cab driver Paul Stein was shot to death by his passenger in the Presidio Heights district of San Francisco. The killer took Stein's wallet and keys, wiped down some of the blood from the cab, and fled as police arrived. Two days later, a letter was received by the San Francisco Chronicle claiming responsibility for the murder. Alongside the letter, the writer included a piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt, offered as proof that he was really responsible. Primarily because of the letters, police believed these five murders were committed by the man calling himself the Zodiac. But despite a massive investigation across multiple police departments, the case was never solved, and the identity of the killer remains unknown to this day. Dozens, if not hundreds, of different theories have been put forward over the years as to the identity of the Zodiac killer. But to date, nobody has ever been able to put together a particularly convincing case against anyone that withstands close scrutiny. Of all these theories, the one that has gained the most traction amongst the public originates with Robert Graysmith, a true crime writer who worked as a cartoonist at the San Francisco Chronicle during the Zodiac murders. In Graysmith's 1986 book, Zodiac, and its sequel, Zodiac Unmasked, the author singles out Arthur Lee Allen as the Zodiac. Allen was a convicted child molester who was briefly considered a suspect in 1969 but dismissed by the police because they were unable to find any evidence linking him to the murders. Despite Graysmith's persistent accusations against Allen, repeatedly made in television interviews, he was almost certainly not the Zodiac. DNA tests on one of the letters did not match him, nor did a handprint found on another. Handwriting experts could also find no match between extensive examples of Allen's handwriting and the Zodiac letters. Since its publication, many experts on the case have thoroughly dismantled Graysmith's book, exposing it as a mixture of myths, half-truths, and inventions concocted to present a non-existent case against an innocent man. Despite the falsity of Robert Graysmith's claims, it has not stopped them from becoming the dominant modern narrative about the Zodiac case. Used as the source for countless documentaries and other books, it was also the basis of a 2007 film about the case by director David Fincher. With the failure of anyone to find any credible suspects in the case, could the theory that the Zodiac killer was some kind of hoax be correct? and the murders attributed to him unrelated? If not for the letters and phone calls attributed to the Zodiac Killer, it is doubtful the five murders the killer claimed responsibility for would have ever been linked by the police. Whilst the Lake Herman Road and Lake Berryessa attacks were committed against young couples, the Blue Rocks Springs victims were not a couple, 
nor were they, as is often reported, in a lover's lane area. Darlene Farron and Mike Magow were actually attacked in a busy parking lot close to a main road, with cars coming and going around them. This was a high-risk location for murder and a far cry from the remote beauty spots where the Zodiac made two of his purported attacks. The third attack at Lake Berryessa is also quite different in style to the previous two sets of murders. Here, for the one and only time, the Zodiac wears a disguise – a black executioner's hood with sunglasses over the eye holes and a bib over his chest with the now-familiar cross-circle symbol painted on it. Whilst laying on the Zodiac imagery thick, he also spends a great deal of time talking with his victims something he is not known to have done in any of the other murders. This is also the only known attack where he ties up his victims. 29-year-old Paul Stein was the Zodiac's last victim, robbed and murdered while driving his cab in the middle of a San Francisco street, as bystanders looked on. This attack appears least like the others attributed to the Zodiac, and would have undoubtedly been dismissed as an all-too-common robbery gone wrong if not for the letter writer's own claims to responsibility. All of these seemingly disparate attacks used a different murder weapon. The first murders at Lake Herman Road were thought to have been committed with a 22 automatic pistol. The assailant of Paul Stein and at Blue Rock Springs used different 9mm semi-automatics, and the victims at Lake Berryessa were stabbed with a long knife. There was no matching ballistics in any of the crimes attributed to the Zodiac, nor any other solid forensic evidence that linked them. Although fingerprints and palm prints were lifted at several of the crime scenes, none of them ever matched each other. To all intents and purposes, these appeared to be unrelated murders. Could it be that the Zodiac was not a genuine murderer, but a warped hoaxer? claiming credit for unrelated crimes, or separate criminals adopting the Zodiac's widely publicized persona as a kind of alibi. Clearly, if you commit a crime, then blame it on an uncaught, high-profile serial killer, a serial killer that could not possibly be you, that you've created a cast-iron alibi for the crime that you did commit. Although rarely mentioned in the numerous documentaries on the subject or Robert Graysmith's books, there were strong alternative suspects in several of the individual crimes that were attributed to the Zodiac. Salina County investigators at the time had good reason to believe the first attack at Lake Herman Road was drug-related. Two informants, in jail for a similar crime the year before, pointed to a drug-dealing associate of theirs named David Wally Ott as the shooter of Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday. Police had some corroboration of this ID from another witness and a confirmed account of a confrontation between Faraday and another drug dealer in which Faraday had threatened to turn him into the police. Such drug and gang-related violence was all too common in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 60s. Ten people had been murdered in the previous year alone. If the Zodiac had not effectively ended the investigation by claiming credit for Jensen and Faraday's deaths, other credible, albeit far less sensational suspects may very well have been found. There was also a plethora of possible alternative suspects in the Blue Rock Springs attack on Farron and Majow, including a rogue cop, the same drug gangs that may have been involved in the late Kerman Road murders and Darlene Farron's ex-husband, James Phillips Crabtree. If the murder of Farron had never been linked to the Zodiac, Crabtree, as her estranged ex-husband, would have been a prime suspect. The pair's relationship was acrimonious and violent, and even after Farron's tragic death, Crabtree would continue to talk about her in the most bitter and degrading terms. He was also arrested shortly after her death in the possession of a handgun, similar to the one used in the murder. Despite the fact that it would have been routine for Crabtree to have been considered a prime suspect, amazingly it wasn't until months later that the police briefly looked into him in connection with Farron's murder, 
Such was the power that the idea of a Zodiac killer had on the police investigation. If Crabtree was Farron's murderer, what about the letters? Two factors tentatively suggest the possibility he may have written at least some of the earlier ones. As a trained cryptographer, Crabtree had the credentials to have written the ciphers contained in the Zodiac's first letters. He also uses the Zodiac's trademark circle crosshairs symbol in a postcard he wrote to an occult bookshop in England sometime in 1969. It's not clear whether this was posted before or after the symbol appears in the letters, but either way, it's striking. Whilst there is little to suggest Crabtree was responsible for any of the other murders, could he have written the letters and added Jensen and Faraday as fictional Zodiac victims to act as a kind of alibi for himself in the murder of Darlene Farron? It has long been speculated that the third attack at Lake Berryessa may have been a copycat, a twisted and disturbed person taking on the persona of the Zodiac as reported so vividly in the media during the previous weeks. Whilst the killer at Lake Berryessa uses the Zodiac's logo and writes a Zodiac-like message on the car door, everything else about the attack only bears a superficial resemblance to the Zodiac's previously alleged murders. This is also the only attack the writer of the letters never mentions, somewhat odd considering his primary motive always appeared to be taking public credit for his work. The change of killing method also singles out Lake Berryessa as unusual. Whilst by no means unprecedented for a serial killer to change murder technique, moving from shooting to stabbing is quite rare. Shooting is an impersonal and clinical method of killing, giving the gunman a degree of control and distance from the crime. Stabbing, however, is up close, messy, and personal. The murderer gets his victim's blood on his hands. The contrast between the two methods reveals a very different pathology in the killer, and quite possibly a different killer altogether. There are other problems in the Lake Berryessa attack. Although the Zodiac left a message on the car door of his victims, no trace of blood is present on the door, despite the fact he had conducted a frenzied knife attack, stabbing Hartnell and Shepard a total of 16 times just moments before. How had the killer managed to so thoroughly clean his hands? The handwriting on the car door also shows some distinct differences between the writing evident in the Zodiac letters, although these could be accounted for by the unusual angle he may have had to adopt to write on the door. Either way, it cannot reliably be tied to the real Zodiac in either form or content with any certainty. The last murder attributed to the Zodiac killer was cab driver Paul Stein. Like many of the previous attacks, this would no doubt have been treated by the police as a routine, entirely unrelated crime if it were not for the Zodiac's claims of responsibility. Stein had been shot and robbed of his wallet, reminiscent of a spate of other cab robberies that had plagued the area around that time. Eyewitnesses who saw the killer leave the cab described the assailant as a white man with a crew cut and glasses, ages 25 to 30. This was one of only two descriptions we can reliably assume were of the killer. But the other, from surviving Zodiac victim Mike Bajow, describes a shooter who did not wear glasses and had short, curly hair, not a crew cut. Stein's killer, whoever it was, certainly appeared to be someone other than the person who wrote the letters. In an anniversary special on the Zodiac killings published in 1991, the Napa Times reported that a bloody fingerprint from the Stein cab did not match latent prints lifted off the letters. Again, none of the forensic evidence gathered from the Stein murder scene, the prints, or the ballistics provided any link at all to any of the other crimes attributed to the Zodiac. Only the claims of responsibility in a series of letters sent to local newspapers by someone calling themselves the Zodiac and a couple of phone calls to the police provided any links between the crimes. But just how believable are these? 
The first problem with the Zodiac letters starts right at the beginning, with the two murders at Lake Herman Road in late 1968. For a killer so keen to take credit for and boast about his actions, it takes him more than six months to make any mention of these murders. The first brief reference is a phone call made to the police shortly after the second attack on Darlene Farron and Mike Majow, in which he states, I want to report a murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. Whilst he offers nothing that can corroborate his claim to be responsible for the December murders, he does provide one checkable fact for the July 4th attack that he used a 9mm Luger. For anyone who had discussed the matter with detectives, overheard police transmissions, or been around the murder scene, it was a reasonable assumption that Farron was killed with a Luger because of the bullets and shells found by police. But subsequent analysis by ballistics experts found that the murder weapon was not a Luger, but a similar semi-automatic pistol that took the same ammunition, a Browning High Power. On the night of the call, this fact was only known to the true killer, and the caller appeared unaware of it. Clearly, the phone call itself provided no compelling evidence that the caller was responsible for the December and July 4 murders, and actually tended to argue against the idea. In the first letter sent to Bay Area newspapers on July 31st, the writer provides evidence that he says proves he was responsible for the Lake Herman Road and Darlene Farron murders. Vallejo Police Chief Jack Stiltz was, however, unconvinced. Talking to reporters, Stiltz said that the writer had demonstrated no knowledge that could not have been gleaned from the newspapers or by overhearing police chatter. Hoax letters, phone calls, and even false confessions are a depressingly familiar prospect for any major police department caught in the middle of a high-profile case, and Stiltz's skepticism was warranted. A few days later, the writer tries again. In this second letter, mailed to the examiner, he tells a fanciful tale about taping a torch to his gun in the December murders, but offers no other details that might prove he was the real killer, such as what clothes his victims were wearing, something not reported in the newspapers. He offers more information about the murder of Darlene Farron, claiming that he shot Mike Majow in the knee and did not, as reported in the papers, leave the scene at high speed with tires squealing, instead leaving slowly so as to not draw attention to himself. Both of these facts, offered by the writer now calling himself the Zodiac, appear to be wrong. Mike Majow was not shot in the knee, and both he and other witnesses did describe the shooter as leaving the scene at high speed, with engine racing and tires squealing. The writer of these first two letters do appear to be the same person, but nothing contained in them genuinely provided any arguable evidence that he was the true perpetrator of the two attacks, or even anything that could not have been learnt from other sources. The next canonical Zodiac attack came at Lake Berryessa in September. Curiously, the assailant there had become somewhat shy, not only hiding behind his bizarre Zodiac disguise, but failing to write any letters boasting about his actions. He does, however, leave a message on the victim's car door, consisting of the dates of the previous attacks and the latest one, signed with the Zodiac's crosshair logo. Shortly later, someone phoned the Napa police claiming the credit for the double murder, but offered no information only known to the killer. Likewise, the car door message contains nothing about the previous attacks not already in public domain, and only bears a superficial resemblance to the handwriting from the letters. Tellingly, the writer does not seem to know his own name, Zodiac. This would be understandable if the writer was a hoaxer, since that fact had not yet been publicly revealed by the police. Everything about the Lake Berryessa murders suggests a copycat attack by someone other than the writer of the letters, and the car door message and phone call provide no evidence to suggest otherwise. When the letter from the Zodiac appeared on October 13, 
claiming credit for the murder of cab driver Paul Stein, the police were surprised as they had believed the killing was simply a robbery murder, just like the spate of similar crimes against cab drivers that had plagued the city all year. The text of the Zodiac's October 13 letter makes several dubious claims and contains no insights that would prove it was the true killer of Stein. San Francisco police inspector Martin Lee was unimpressed by the Zodiac's latest correspondence. His boast of being in the area we were searching while we were searching it is a lie, Lee said in a San Francisco Chronicle report on the case. The article further stated that detectives were well aware that many of the Zodiac's previous claims were also lies. This latest letter could easily be dismissed as another hoax, if not for a piece of bloody cloth seemingly ripped by the killer from Paul Stein's shirt, sent alongside the letter to the Chronicle. Of all the evidence offered by the writer of the letters, this was by far the most convincing. Whilst the piece of shirt did nothing to prove the Zodiac was responsible for earlier murders, it certainly seems compelling evidence he must have killed Stein. But could the writer have acquired the bloody shirt some other way? The possibility that someone, a cop, a reporter, or someone else with insider connections had somehow managed to obtain the shirt piece after the murder cannot be overlooked. It would not be the first time that police investigations had been breached like this. The history of crime detection is replete with hoaxers and frauds that have managed to garner what looked like insider information only the killer could have known. There are numerous examples of murder investigations being derailed by hoaxers who seem to have information that convinces the police they must be the real killer. The granddaddy of all serial killer cases, Jack the Ripper, contains several parallels with the Zodiac case. Like the Zodiac, Jack gave himself his famous name in a taunting letter he wrote to the police. Several other letters were written by someone claiming to be Jack, a serial murderer of prostitutes in Whitechapel, London in 1888. Some of these letters contain details that appeared to show the writer new details of the crime scenes not generally known. Another was even accompanied, like the Stein shirt, by a piece of physical evidence, a human kidney said to have come from the Ripper's fourth victim, Catherine Eddowes. Today, the majority of Ripper historians believe all of the letters attributed to Jack the Ripper are hoaxes. Indeed, whilst the murders were of course very real, the character of Jack the Ripper evoked in the letters was a fictional creation, probably dreamt up by journalist Thomas Bulling in order to keep the lurid case on the front pages. It's quite possible Bulling was able to insert authentic-sounding facts into some of the letters by his associations with rogue police detectives, the incestuous two-way sharing of information between the press and the police as prevalent then as it is in today's tabloid world. Could the Zodiac letters be the creation of an enterprising 1960s equivalent of Thomas Bulling? Could the authentic details in the letters have been given to him by his contacts in the police department? Other examples indicate insider contacts in the police are not necessary for a hoaxer to create a convincing facsimile of a real killer. In the late 1970s, in Northern England, police were closing in on a serial killer, Peter Sutcliffe, when a hoaxer managed to deflect the investigation down a cul-de-sac which probably cost at least three women their lives. Dubbed Wareside Jack, John Samuel Humble sent letters and an audio tape to the Yorkshire police that convinced them he had knowledge only the real killer could have known. Because of this, and Humble's strong Wareside accent, the whole investigation was moved away from West Yorkshire, where Sutcliffe operated, to the northeast of England. In actual fact, Humble had no inside information, he just read the papers and paid attention. Because of the size and complexity of the inquiry, police had simply become unaware of what information had and had not become public. Humble was finally caught 24 years later and sentenced to eight years for perverting the course of justice. A contemporary serial killer case to the Zodiac is that of Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. 
DeSalvo confessed to all 13 murders attributed to the Strangler and was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1967, just a year before the Zodiac murders began. Despite the conviction, there is growing belief amongst forensic investigators that DeSalvo was innocent of at least some of the murders, and as a compulsive liar, was able to insert convincing-sounding but erroneous information into his confessions to fool the police. Crime author Casey Sherman believes some of the younger victims may have been unrelated murders disguised by the perpetrators to look like strangler murders to provide them with an alibi, a suspicion echoed in the Zodiac case. Despite the vast number of differing theories as to the identity of the Zodiac killer, most of them agree on one thing that a single individual committed the murders, made the phone calls, and wrote the letters attributed to the Zodiac. A certain baseline of generally uncontested assumptions exists that are accepted by most theorists and even the original investigators in the case. If they're true, then it makes the idea that the Zodiac killer was a hoax or never really existed hard to countenance. Law enforcement at the time, and most theorists today, believe that the writer of the letters and the individual who wrote the message on the car door of the victims at Lake Berryessa were the same person, due to handwriting matches made by experts like Sherwood Morrill. If the letter writer really was a hoaxer rather than a murderer, then he would have had to have somehow stumbled upon the Lake Berryessa crime scene by chance in order to be present to write on the car door, which seems unlikely. Furthermore, unless he had inside help from the police, the letter writer almost certainly murdered cab driver Paul Stein because of the piece of Stein's bloodied shirt he sent alongside his letter taking responsibility for the crime. It seems likely, then, that the letter writer calling himself the Zodiac probably did murder Cecilia Shepard at Lake Berryessa and Paul Stein in San Francisco. But did he commit the other Zodiac murders? or just claim credit for them. If the other canonical Zodiac murders were not the work of the same man, then we must posit multiple killers committing similar murders in a relative small area at the same time, which seems statistically improbable. Although the killings do appear to show different methodologies, this is not as unusual as is often thought. In criminologist Robert D. Keppel's book about serial murderers, signature killer, he describes what he calls M.O.Purism, a tendency amongst law enforcement to only link separate murders if the method used is exactly the same. According to Kepler, serial killers do sometimes change their M.O., modus operandi, as they strive to become more comfortable in the specific circumstances of each successive murder. But what doesn't change, according to the former FBI criminal profiler John Douglas, is the killer's signature. We came to realize that while M.O. was important in certain types of crimes, it wasn't nearly as important as what I call signature, Douglas wrote. Signature, the unique aspect that was critical not so much to accomplish the crime as to satisfy the perpetrator emotionally. For the Zodiac, the signature of his murders seemed to be the exerting of control and the demonstration of his superiority over the public and the police via his letters, a common thread that does seem to link the crimes even where the methodologies are different. It could also be argued that the different methods the Zodiac employed in his crimes were simply employed out of expediency. For example, his use of a disguise and knife at Lake Berryessa may be because he committed the attack in daylight and wished to avoid detection. But whilst that attack and the Paul Stein murder appear to be very different, both exhibited the same signature use of messages and phone calls to the police that sought to assert the Zodiac's control over the investigation. This need for control culminated in the threat he made in his October 13, 1969 letter to the Chronicle, in which he said he would blow up a school bus and pick off the children as they fled. This essentially singled him out as a kind of terrorist, using his crimes and the letters to cause fear and anxiety among the populace. The Zodiac murders have also become a parlor game, a giant jigsaw puzzle with many of the pieces missing, 
Like many such cases where hard facts are few and far between, speculation and assumptions have filled the gaps. Often, like the half-truths and gossip packaged as investigative journalism by Robert Graysmith, facts get substituted by fiction in the public's mind. But even though much of Graysmith's mythology has been exposed as nonsense, many of his basic assumptions about the case are still widely accepted as correct by most theorists and investigators. By challenging these most fundamental assumptions about the case, authors like Thomas Horan have created a credible argument that questions the very existence of the Zodiac Killer. When the speculation and myths are stripped away, what's left does suggest the possibility that the famous Zodiac Killer may be a phantom, a fictional boogeyman we choose to keep alive because sometimes our darkest fears make for a far better story than the mundane truth. Up next, America, the home of baseball, apple pie, jazz, and spiritualism. And from the spirits of famous female historical figures to the girlish ghouls of urban legend, female ghosts are some of the scariest spirits out there. These stories when Weird Darkness returns. Here at Weird Darkness, scares are a daily thing. But what I'm about to tell you might horrify you. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Over 43,000 people die each year from drug overdose. That's 120 people per day, 5 people per hour. That's a death by overdose every 12 minutes. And alcohol abuse is even worse. 88,000 people die every year from alcohol abuse. That's 240 people per day, 10 per hour. One person dying from alcohol abuse every six minutes. Somebody close to you might be next. Before that happens, take a proactive step and learn how to get those you love away from the drugs, alcohol, and other bad influences. Learn more by calling 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get the help they need and keep their job so they can return to it. 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. Spiritualism, like jazz, is an American original and a part of who we are as a community and as a culture. Without it, you would not be listening to this podcast and have an interest in ghosts and the supernatural. It is literally the glue that holds us all together. But what was it? What was it like? And how does it linger as part of what we do today? The basic tenet of spiritualism was that the human personality survives death and lives on in another form. It was believed that the dead could, and regularly did, communicate with the world. The term medium is given to those who function as intermediaries between the living and the spirits of the dead during seances. During the heyday of spiritualism between the late 1840s and the 1920s, there were two types of mediums – mental and physical. Mental mediums used their minds and bodies as channels through which the dead could communicate. Physical mediums produced physical paranormal phenomena such as loud raps, voices, moving objects, and even materialized spirit bodies. The source of such powers was thought to be the mediums themselves, who used their spirit energy, or the Victorian-era substance known as ectoplasm, to produce seance phenomena. The practice of communicating with the spirit world using an intermediary is an ancient one. The priestess, or Pythia, as she was known, who went into a trance to make prophecies at the Greek oracle of Delphi is an early example. The Old Testament account of the Witch of Endor tells the story of the raising of the spirit of Samuel to King Saul 
so that he could question him about the outcome of an approaching battle. But the heyday of mediumship coincided with the spread of spiritualism in the United States during the mid to late 19th century. Of the thousands practicing the art, or more often than not the deception of mediumship, only a handful, like Daniel Douglas Holm and a few others, stand out as notable and unusual individuals. Traditional seances were held in a darkened room, and sitters were usually placed around a table, holding hands and quiet music would often be played. The music and dim lighting created conditions that were supposed to encourage the spirits to make contact, though skeptics argued that they also created an ideal opportunity for fraud. The medium would go into a trance and spirits would communicate through, while they also created a wide range of bizarre phenomena that was witnessed by observers. Such happenings included table rapping, loud knocks on tables or from elsewhere in the room said to be from spirits trying to communicate, often during seances, tables would often move or tilt, despite being held down by the sitters. Levitation Objects in the room such as tables, chairs, and pianos would lift from the floor and move around. In the case of Daniel Hume, the medium himself reportedly levitated in well-lit rooms and in front of dozens of reliable witnesses. Cold spots Cold breezes or notable drops in the temperature of the air were often reported. Ghostly music Musical instruments were a standard part of seances, especially during demonstrations by the famous Davenport brothers, but not for the mediums or sitters to play. The spirits not only plucked the strings of guitars and violins and shook tambourines, they also reportedly made them fly about in the air. Disembodied Voices Ghostly whispers were often reported, along with the clear voices of the dead, although most communications came through the medium. Apports The sudden appearance of small, portable objects often occurred in the seance room. Such items which came out of thin air were usually flowers or coins, although occasionally personal items of the dead, such as a ring or a handkerchief, were recorded. Ectoplasm This term was coined by paranormal researcher Charles Roche to describe the mysterious, white-gray, viscous substance that emanated apparently from the bodies of some physical mediums. Occasionally, the ectoplasm would form into the shape of human limbs or even into fully formed spirit entities that walked freely among the sitters. Ectoplasm remains one of the most controversial aspects from the heyday of the spiritual movement. If it was real, it was never collected for study, which causes great doubt among skeptics. Combined with the fact that so many mediums were caught faking the production of ectoplasm using egg whites, cheesecloth, and animal fluids, that its reality has been called into serious question. And Physical Manifestations The appearance of spirit forms, like the famous example of the ghost of Katie King, who was created by medium Florence Cook, was the pinnacle of feats for physical mediums. Very few of them, however, came through an invention of their talents unscathed. Oddly, though, there were a few mediums that were linked to physical manifestations, like the Eddy brothers of Vermont, whose talents remain unexplained even today. In time, the exposure of many physical mediums using magic tricks to produce their phenomena caused mediumship to fall into disrepute. As the 20th century progressed, physical mediumship became less practiced, and most of the spectacular psychic phenomena associated with people like Daniel Hume disappeared. That is not to say that there have not been flamboyant, not to mention controversial, modern figures claiming to be in contact with the dead. It's just that the modern medium and the modern seance are rather less theatrical than during the golden age of spiritualism. Stories about female ghosts can be found across the globe, and many of these international tales of terror have chilling similarities. 
For instance, why do so many places have stories about women in white or vanishing hitchhikers? These connections make us wonder what universal trauma or shared truth has made these stories take root in our collective consciousness. Regardless, we know one thing for sure – these female phantoms are capable of chilling us to the bone. Step aside, ghost bros. These lady wraiths are redefining the scare game. The Vanishing Hitchhiker Chances are you've heard this story before and perhaps thought of it uneasily while driving alone late at night. You may have even had an encounter with the vanishing hitchhiker herself. Although the story varies slightly based on the teller, it generally goes something like this. A man is driving alone late at night during a storm when he sees a young, beautiful woman on the side of the road. Concerned for her safety, he gives her a ride and might even offer her his jacket to keep her warm. He drives her to a home, but once they arrive, she disappears. Confused, he rings the doorbell and is told by whoever answers that, yes, a young girl lived there once, but she died years ago in a car accident on a stormy night much like this one. Kushakiana The Kushakiana, also known as the slit-mouthed woman, is a Japanese ghost who terrorizes children. She is said to wear a face mask which she removes when she approaches her victim, revealing a smile that has been grotesquely slit. She then asks the child, do you think I'm beautiful? If they answer no, she kills them. If they answer yes, she gives them a mouth just like hers. The best answer to give the slit-mouthed woman, should you be unfortunate enough to cross her path, just run for your life. Anne Boleyn The ghost of King Henry VIII's second wife is said to haunt the Tower of London and surrounding buildings to this day. Given how grievously Anne was mistreated by her husband, it's not surprising her spirit has not been able to rest. The king divorced and beheaded Anne when she did not produce a male heir to the throne. Henry's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, is also said to haunt the Hampton Court, where she was arrested before being beheaded. The Crying Woman In Latin American folklore, La Llorona, or Crying Woman, is a weeping entity often found in or around bodies of water. Legend says that she drowned her children to punish her husband for infidelity and that she killed herself afterwards out of remorse. To this day, she is believed to walk waterways searching for her lost babies. Some variations of the tale believe La Llorona takes living children that she finds on her wanderings, while other iterations claim that those who hear the ghostly wails will soon die. There are some commonalities between the legend of La Llorona and female spirits from other cultures like the Banshees in Gaelic legend or the baby-gobbling demigoddess Lamia from Greek mythology. The Ironed Lady The famous Mexican ghost, La Planchada, or the Ironed Lady, is the spirit of a nurse who many claim to have seen at hospitals across Mexico. There are many iterations of her origin story. Some believe she was killed by a patient. Others say she killed herself after a romance with a doctor ended in tragedy. But La Planchada may not be a spirit to fear. According to legend, many of the patients that she visits find themselves mysteriously healed the very next day. The Bell Witch The Bell Witch legend is based on ghostly goings-on that were experienced by the Bell family in their home in 1817. They believed the phenomena they experienced – flying furniture, mysterious noises, frightened animals – were caused by the ghost of a witch named Kate Batts. It was later revealed that Betsy, the Bell's young daughter, caused much of the commotion. But the Bell Witch legend endures to this day and was even a key inspiration for the Blair Witch movie franchise. The White Lady The White Lady is an iconic female ghost who's been reported in stories across the globe. She's often described as wearing a white, blood-soaked dress 
and frequents rural areas where tragedy has occurred, doomed to wander forever in torment until she can receive some closure. Bloody Mary Who among us hasn't tried or at least heard of someone trying to conjure Bloody Mary at a sleepover or during a spooky night at summer camp? The enduring legend of Bloody Mary has its roots in several different women. Queen Mary I, a rumored child killer, and a young girl believed to have died in a gruesome train accident. No matter who Bloody Mary is, the rules for summoning her are relatively consistent. Dim the lights, say her name three times while looking in a mirror, and then wait for the bloodletting to start. Dolly Madison We're not talking tasty snack cakes here. First Lady Dolly Madison played an influential role in making the White House the social center of politics in early America. Legend has it that she continues to take her duties as First Lady seriously to this day. Her ghost reportedly frightened gardeners away when they were trying to make changes to a rose garden that Dolly herself had planted. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And a quick congratulations to Jessica Sherman. She is this week's Weird Darkness retweet winner and is receiving a free Weird Darkness smartphone cover. Next week's winner gets a free Weird Darkness crew neck sweatshirt. If you want to win, follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. The more you retweet, the greater your chances of winning. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this month, October, is our anniversary month, and instead of asking for you to purchase audiobooks that I've narrated or to become a patron, I'm asking you to help me raise as much money as we can for depression and suicide prevention. And you can give right now by clicking on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. As of recording this episode, we're still at $1,250, which means no movement at all since yesterday towards our goal of $2,000. So please, if you've been thinking about giving or planning to give but just haven't gotten around to it yet, please do so now. Click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. And earlier today, I received an email from a mom and her name is Callie, and I debated whether or not I should share this because it is quite personal, but I think it's important enough to share here and you'll understand why when I begin reading. She says, Dear Darren, thank you for helping to raise money for depression and suicide prevention. As I write this, my 16-year-old son is in mental health facility getting free treatment as we have no insurance at this time. He suffers from depression and was Baker acted Friday because of a suicide attempt. I am devastated, but I am grateful that such a facility exists. I love your show, and I love that you are open about your depression. It's so often an embarrassment and swept under the rug, which is why many people do not get help. Thanks again, and keep up the amazing work. You're awesome, and no matter what a few negative people think, do not change your show, everything about it's great. I love the Bible verses. Your fellow weirdo, Callie. P.S. Any tips on coping skills and meds that help? Hi, Callie. I am so sorry to hear about your son. That really is truly awful. I do hope that he gets the help that he needs there. In fact, I think mental health experts, they're definitely the right thing for somebody whose depression is so severe to the point of hurting themselves. I have been extremely fortunate in that mine has never been to that level. Now, I'm not a doctor, so I can only tell you what's worked for me, okay, which is what I assume you're asking. But please know this is not a doctor's opinion. You do need to talk to a professional. But honestly, for me, personally, nothing helped until I got the meds. All right, No, no amount of watching comedy TV shows or anything else did any good because it's not really your mood that's the problem, it's your brain chemistry. If your son is in a mental health facility, I would imagine that they would have the right pharmaceuticals there for him. 
We tried a few drugs between me and my doctor and found that for me personally, citalopram worked pretty well. And I was okay for a couple of years on just that, but then my depression began to get worse again. So, along with the citalopram, I also took the, uh, I'll take that as now, uh, bupropion. Now, the citalopram has a calming effect, so I take that at bedtime because it can sometimes make people drowsy. And then the bupropion has sort of an uplifting kind of effect. It's kind of like a, like a mild case of speed, as I've been told. I've never taken speed, so I don't know. But anyway, I take that in the morning. So the two combined do seem to be working pretty well for me right now. And that being said, nothing is foolproof and permanent. I still have extremely stressful days once in a while, especially now that I'm doing this podcast because I really put pressure on myself um, to do one every day if at all possible. If I miss a day, I try to do two the next day. So I kind of put the pressure on myself, and I know that's my fault. But uh, it's important to take time to shut off your brain entirely. And again, that for me at least, it's, it's important. So I don't know if your son can do this, but for me, I take every Saturday and I walk away from the computer. I turn off Facebook Messenger and I just veg in front of the TV to mindless movies and shows that are just entertaining to me. Anything that comes to my computer via email or any orders from for voice work or whatever, it can all wait until the next day. It doesn't have to be done that exact day. And even if it does need to be, the, be done that exact day, my mental health is a whole heck of a lot more important. Now, also, getting enough sleep has become really crucial for me. I'm somebody who needs 8 to 10 hours of sleep per day, and if I don't get that, then the feeling of depression kicks back in, and sometimes along with the headaches that occur with depression, which, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I'm dealing with right now as I record this. Well, For somebody whose depression is as severe as that of your son, it's really important that he has somebody to talk with who can relate to what he's going through. Nobody really understands depression, truly understands depression, unless they have it themselves. It's just one of those things that you really can't explain to somebody without them actually uh, feeling it themselves. So maybe he can find somebody at the facility he's in right now, or maybe he can find a friend who also suffers from it. Uh, when he's feeling particularly weak, having somebody to call or text could literally be a lifesaver. I have a friend uh, who will call me once in a while when they are having a particularly bad day, and, well, they can call a lot. Sometimes, uh, they finally did meet somebody and get married who, that person, by the way, also has depression, and that seems to work pretty well because they can lift each other up. When one's down, the other can lift them up and then vice versa. If nothing else, though, if, if nothing else is available, call somebody. Call the helpline that we talk about here on the podcast. That's 800-830-9804. 800-830-9804. There is somebody there 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And most of the people answering the phone there, they have the same issues and have found help, which is why they're qualified to answer the calls. They've been there. If there is substance abuse as well, if your son has a substance abuse problem on top of the depression, there's another number you can call, which is 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. Those people specialize in cases of both combined. Now, you can find the, both of these numbers if you missed it uh, or want to find them later. You can find them on the sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com. This was a pretty lengthy response, I, I know, but I do hope this helps uh, you as well as those listening. And uh, Callie, your email, just it simply reaffirms how important of an issue this is and how we're on the right track by doing a fundraiser for this. It's that important. So thank you very much. And I will be praying for you and your son tonight. So again, if you have not given to the campaign yet and you're thinking about doing so, tonight would be a great night to do it. Click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. All stories in this episode are purported to be true. You can find links in the show notes. Zodiac, the Phantom Killer, was posted at The Unredacted. Spiritualism was written by Troy Taylor. And Ghoulish Ghost Girls was written by Carolyn Cox. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. 
And now that we are coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Isaiah 41.10 So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. With so many weirdos sending in their own stories for Weird Darkness, I know I've got a lot of right-brained creative weirdos listening. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorant Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book, Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorant Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorrance Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362.